I work for Cadence International. We work with military families all over the world. And um, my family and I are going to be here the next two weeks. And we have uh, dinner parties on the 7th here at the church. And on the 14th, if you guys want to come hear about what we're going to do, we'd love for you to come out. Um, but that's not what I'm going to talk about this morning. And I want to spend some time talking about faithfulness. And uh, I'm going to start out, and, and some of you guys may be MMA or Ultimate Fighting fans. Are any of you guys into that stuff? It's okay. Some, not many people will recognize that here at church sometimes. But, um, but in MMA, they have this thing they call tap out. And it's in most of grappling or martial arts. And when you have been in a submission hold by the other fighter, once you reach your threshold for pain and suffering, you can tap out. It's a sign of relenting and yielding. You give up. I'm done. And my question for us this morning, I'm going to ask it several times, is when do we tap out of obedience to Christ? When do we give up? When do we stop obeying the call to follow, to make disciples, to obey and do righteous things? What's our threshold? What's our pain threshold and what will we do for Jesus? And so I just want you guys to process that a little bit. And, and I want to tell you a couple stories first. And so I'm going to pick on our younger generation a little bit. And just so you know, guys, the, the older folks, the reason you're that way is because of them. So you, you can blame someone. But there's a couple stories from this book that I really have enjoyed reading because I have a lot of millennials on my staff. And it's called Not Everyone Gets a Trophy. They, they found it. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's a great, it's a fun read. I liked all of it except for the last three chapters. But in there, he starts out with a couple real illustrations from managers. And so the first one is quite shocking to me, but not all that much. So there's a young nurse. She's right out of nursing school. Um, she's on her first assignment at a teaching hospital, and she has a, a 30-year veteran managing her. And so she's been given a task to put some medicine in an IV drip. And she goes into the room, and the nurse manager is watching, of course, as good supervisors do. And uh, she sticks the the, I, what's it, the syringe right into the IV drip and starts to inject the medicine. And right away, you know, um, she, the other nurse thinks this is the teaching moment. So she stops her, and she says, you're doing this wrong. You're supposed to check the, the name badge on the wrist, the chart. And the medicine in the IV bag before you put anything in. You could cost this man his life. And the young nurse stopped the old nurse right there and said, you're not doing this right. You're supposed to encourage me, then criticize me, and then encourage me again. (laughs) But there is a level of entitlement. And one of the things I want to get at today is we tap out of things out of obedience when our entitlement threshold is reached. And she didn't deserve to be treated or spoken to that way. She needed to be encouraged first. But you guys do understand in Scripture, we're supposed to... We have obedience in obeying authority and instruction and receiving it. But... And we'll keep going. There's another story in there about a young man. Just finished a job interview. And the interviewer says, is there anything else that you'd like me to know? And he says, well, would it be okay if I came late to work some days? And the interviewer was quite intrigued by this. He said, well, why? He goes, because surfing's really important. On the days that there's good tide, I'm going to show up late. And as you guys all know that work, um, unless you have a really flexible boss, that's not how things work. You, we don't live to play. You know, we have a job. We have to take care. But it, it's interesting. There's several more of these in this book. But, and it's not just our younger generation. It's in all of us. All of us have entitlements. We all have things that we hold very dear, that we think we're promised, that we deserve. And I'll start out, what did Adam and Eve think they deserved right in the very beginning? They wanted to be like God, didn't they? They wanted the opportunity to know good from evil and to be free, 
to make themselves into their own decision makers. And, and Satan bought right into that pride and he sold it to him. And entitlement and pride leads to death, leads to sin. We do bad things with it. But all of us have those kinds of things in our lives. I have quite a few. And I'm guessing so do you. But I think it's Satan's way of keeping us ineffective in our ministries. And and you guys can look at things like, think about the last time somebody cut in front of you in traffic. Did we stop obeying Jesus at that moment? I have occasionally done that because I have waited in line appropriately and that person does not deserve to be in front of me. Or, you know, well, just think about any, any place you go, there is some entitlement that we have. And we have these inalienable rights in our Constitution. They're great to have. I like to think of them more as privileges. They were hard-earned and hard-won. And one of my friends jokes around them. Actually, Joan knows her, Beverly Page. I was saying something. She goes, the only thing you deserve, Mark, is hell. I thought, that's a sobering thought. But it's the only thing I've truly earned on my own merit, isn't it? Yeah. And, and it's an interesting thought. And if we live a different way, everything becomes a privilege then, and we're thankful for it. So I, I just want to engage. And this has been an important thing. I've been working um, with Cadence for 17 years now. And one of the things that I've continually processed as I've watched missionaries come and go off the field, and, and it happens to us missionaries, too. We're just like you guys. We, we do the same things. We complain about the same stuff. We get our feelings hurt. We get disappointed. And, and I keep watching people leave the field for different reasons. Or they, and usually it comes up that it's saying it's too hard. And I go, okay, well, what's too hard about it? And, and so I just want to share with you some things that I've heard my staff say over the years. And they weren't even, some of them weren't my staff. I was just their colleague. But... We say the same things when it comes to obedience, too. One of the things I've heard is, I just don't think my children can bear this. They shouldn't have to go through this anymore. And what they're talking about is learning a foreign culture, going to a foreign school, and having the foreign kids pick on your kids. My kids get picked on in an American school, by the way, just so you guys know. <laughs> but, and I'm not trying to make light of it, but I shouldn't have to deal with having to raise support. I shouldn't. But do you hear the, the attitude in there? At some point, it got hard. And so they left the field. And I keep going, there's something wrong with the picture to me in that. Or I've been, I have about 30 staff in Germany, and there's 11 bases in Asia that don't have a youth pastor. They have 9,000 kids a year that go through those bases, and nobody's sharing the gospel with them. And so I have been continually trying to cast vision in that direction. Guys, it's going to cost us to go to Asia. You might have to give up some things. And initially when I broached the subject, it was, we can't go there, that's... That means we're going to be alone and we'll burn out because we don't have team. And that's really hard. That won't be productive ministry. But even in the Michael case, so what's, so you're saying the gospel is too difficult. It will cost you too much to go to that location. And yet sometimes we can do, it's easy to talk about overseas, but let's look at our own world. I mean, sometimes it'll cost us too much to talk to our colleagues. Sometimes it costs us a lot to have Christian boundaries in our families with our children. Sometimes it costs us a lot to stand up for Christ in situations. And we're, we're all engaging with this, should I have to? What can't I endure any longer? When do I cap out? When have I endured too much pain and the Lord shouldn't put me through that, I'm done. I want you guys to think back to the very beginning Adam and Eve sinned. And what was the first thing the Lord did after he kind of went through his whole litany? 
Do you remember? He killed animals and gave them covering. There was sacrifice. Cain and Abel had sacrifice. He set up the Levitical priesthood. There was sacrifice. Jesus had sacrifice. There is this theme throughout the entire Bible of sacrifice. It costs something for the gospel to go forward. Every time. It is never without discomfort. I, I've been trying to look through. There are always... And, I, and here's what I don't want you guys to hear. There are times in your, there are times and things in your life that must end. And there's a great book, a whole other sermon on that. Uh, Henry Cloud's got a book called Necessary Endings. He talks about when you need to end things. And, and they're often relationships or there are situations or things that you need to be done with. Um, and it's a natural biblical principle. But obedience is what we're talking about this morning. It's faithfulness. We're never done being obedient. Never. We can never say, you know, I mean, and at one point, even in my own mind, when we were in Germany, I, I was really tired and I thought, Lord, can I just be done? I've done I've done 15 years overseas. Can I be done now? And he says, no, Mark, that's not how it works. You can have a break, but you're not done. We're not done. So um, one of the things that's most interesting is um, Lily, the Lily Foundation from Indiana commissioned a study on religious habits and behaviors of kids, 6th through 12th grade. They did it for seven years. They followed 3,300 kids and their families. And these kids would be at this church or at churches like this all over the country. And so they took some results about the religious patterns in their families' lives. And the reason they're doing this study, you guys have heard it, it's been pretty publicized, but when 80% of the kids coming out of our churches are leaving the faith, uh, people are trying to get answers. And so some of the things they found were quite interesting. And this lady has come up with a pretty good, a pretty good observation about what is happening. And so... She's outlined five things that these kids believe that sound like Christianity, but are in essence not. And so she's created a new term. It's called MTD, Moral Therapeutic Deism. And um, her name is uh, Melinda Linquist Denton. And I heard her speak last, last October in Atlanta. And she spoke to 10,000 youth pastors. And she said, here's what your kids believe. She says, they believe in a God who exists and created and ordered the world and watches over all human life. Okay, key word you should note in there is watches. They believe God watches, that he's not involved. Second, then that would be more the deism in this. God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most other world religions. And so there's a degree of separation that this is just one of many okay things. The third thing, and I think is the most important for us to understand is the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. And fourth, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And lastly, good people go to heaven when they die. And it's really easy to see how this happens. If we are a church that's about resolving your issues, we have all of a sudden made us the central focus of the faith. He's helping us fix our marriages, helping us fix our relationships. I'm depressed. I feel bad about myself. I have this bad habit. And if we're about fixing stuff, that's not the primary mission. Now, Jesus is about healing. Let's not, let's not, I don't want to, I don't want to overemphasize one and without the other. The church is for the broken. The church is for the needy. The church is for the hurting. But what are all saints called to do? We're a royal priesthood of believers. We're all called to make disciples. And what uh, Melinda said to 10,000 youth pastors was, do you want your kids to stay in the faith? 
teach them it's about something other than themselves. It's about following Christ and giving and serving and participating. And I heard a statistic from a guy who he helps ministries measure what they're good at and how they're being successful. One statistic he quoted is kids are involved in leading the ministry that they're in. They have an 80% chance to stay in the church and in their faith. That's huge. Isn't, isn't that what we're talking about? Church isn't necessarily just about us getting our lives straightened. It's not just about consuming. It's about giving back. And so I want you guys to think about it. I mean, we often mistake. I mean, we, we all are guilty. I am guilty of this. I, when, when my job isn't going well, I'm unhappy. I feel bad about myself. When relationships aren't going well, when, you know, when both of my cars are broken and my washer is overflowing, I'm not happy with life. And I think I should be. I, there's some sort of entitlement in me that thinks I shouldn't have to put up with the stuff. And as a leader, there are plenty of times in my organization when I think people should respect my position. I think they should talk nicely about me. They should understand every sacrifice I've made on their behalf and be appreciative. Is that the way it works, guys? No, it's not the way it works. Think about what Jesus endured. And why would I think I should get something better? And yet when those things happen, I get tired when my workers squabble and they argue. And it's the tenth time we talked about, why can't you guys get along? But that's my job. And I'm, I'm entitled to engage in that. Not entitled to be... Um, I mean, it just, it's an inconvenience to me. Why am I dealing with this again? I should rather look at it as an opportunity to engage the gospel in those situations. But that's, those are some of my entitlements. We all have them. And what I'd like to do, guys, is I'd like to look through Hebrews 11. I know the passage um, is very familiar. But I think there's a couple things in here that I really want you to see. One, these guys are real people. They did some great things, and they're remembered here for the great things they did. But when I mention the name Sarah, what do you guys immediately remember about her? Well, if you're like me, I remember that she... Gave Hagar because she was impatient with God and, and had a child called Ishmael. And yet that's, she's not remembered by one moment. These are real people. And I want you to engage with the very real suffering that they had. And so we're going to start here in, in verse 1. And I want to read, and I'm reading out the ESV. Let me read out this one so it's the same as what you guys see. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and the assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. The first thing I want you guys to see is there is a delayed fulfillment of what is promised to us. Even here. We have the now but not yet kingdom. Jesus is present with us. And yet we fully don't get what he's offered us till later. So all those things that are in your heart, they're not bad things. It's not bad for me to want to be respected and treated and talked nicely of. But. In the act of sacrifice, those are my gifts to the Lord when those things happen. And I respond badly. I don't always do well with that stuff. But everything we have is what we hope for and the assurance of things we don't see yet. So in the moment, we have to recognize it's a delayed promise. Part of it. We get part of it now. We get Jesus. We get the Holy Spirit. We get forgiveness. And later, we get to see the fulfillment of all those things. The next thing I want you guys to see is verse 3. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what was and is seen was not made out of what was visible. This always is and has been about God. It's a God-centered universe. That whole thing about my happiness is the central theme. We've, if, we, if we believe that, we all do engage in it at some level. We miss the boat. It has never been just about me. 
And, and he's saying right here is connected with faith. Everything you see was created by something you can't see. Let's jump on to the next one. And then we're going to look at some, some individuals. And the first one I want to look at, guys, is Noah. And by faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir to the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. Do you guys remember, how long did Noah toil and persevere and be faithful in building the ark? Do you guys remember? It's about 100 years, maybe as many as 120 that's a long time. I planted grass three weeks ago, and I'm out there every day going, when are these stupid things going to germinate? And after about a week, I'm like, let's just buy sod. Forget it. And my wife says, be patient. But do you realize, in our own task, I want you to sit and think about what it was like to build a boat when they'd never seen rain. And what a fool he looked like to people. And how he remained faithful for 120 years. I am so impatient. I, I've been working at recruiting, and in the fall, and I, I probably spent $10,000 flying the places and sharing about our ministry and trying to get people to come on board. And even to the entitlement thing, people would come to my things, and as soon as they hear they have to raise support, they're like, no thanks, that's too hard, I can't do that. I keep going, but the gospel is not about, you know, I'm not patient. I haven't seen any fruit from all of my investment. And I'm going, okay, maybe gosh, shouldn't we do that? But that's, in me, I... I don't know that I would have stayed 120 years and endured like that. But just imagine what that felt like and what it was like to be his family. Oh, your dad's the one with the ark. Your husband. Yeah, yeah, we know about you. Um, so and let's just keep going. The, the next one I want you guys to read is um, in, in 11 through 8, or 8 through 11. By faith, Abraham, when called, got to go to a place where he would later receive as his inheritance. He obeyed and went even though he did not know where he was going. Okay, so imagine dad comes home. He says, hey guys, God told us we're going to move and we're going to live in the tent for the next 40 years and we have no idea where we're going. How's that go over with the family dinner that night? I mean, after living in a tent with my family for a week, I'm usually ready to throw out all the camping gear because um, they're cold and they're wet and they're complaining and it's mostly fun. Um, but I just want you guys to engage what it means to have left everything and to obey, and he didn't know where he was going. It's pretty significant. By faith, he made his home the promised land, like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents. He did, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him in the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city and foundations of whose architect and builder was God. And even by faith, even Sarah, which I think is interesting, who passed who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because, and I think this is a great line, she considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, he as good as dead, came to sin as, as numerous as the stars of the sky and countless as the sand of the seashore. But the one I want you to see is she considered him faithful who had made the promise. So often when we get into these things, we get on the mission field, we do a, an evangelism venture, we try a Sunday school class or a Bible study, we get in and things get hard and we start to question, did God really say that we should do this? It's not going very well. Maybe we did it wrong. Maybe we didn't hear him right. And Sarah did exactly what we all did. We, tried to, we took over God's thing. We didn't trust him and we tried to mess with it. But I love what it says. Do we consider him faithful who promised our belief about who god is is really significant let's go to the next one and and i like this one 
Because it says this twice in the passage. And you've been hearing promise, promise. There were some things that he did. They got to go to the promised land. They got to have a son. They got to do some of these things. But this is talking about something different. And all these people were still living by faith when they died. So they're saying it's a life. They never gave up. They kept living. They had some setbacks. They did some dumb things. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a far distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they were looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of a country they had left, they would have had the opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he is prepared a city for them. Again, delayed promise fulfillment. It wasn't just here. They didn't get what they were promised. And I asked George, my father-in-law, last night, what was the promise? He said, it was the promise of the Messiah. It was the promise to be saved, to be restored. These guys were all Old Testament folks. They didn't get to see that happen. And they hoped for it. And we are post-Christ. We know it's happened. But there are things that we promise. The restoration, God's name being glorified, the world being restored to its order. Those things are yet to come. And so for a while, we must endure difficulty, shame, persecution. But if we are so hung up in what we deserve, we don't endure those things. We step out, we quit, we jump off the bandwagon. And it says if they had been thinking of the country they had left. Do you you hear what he's saying there? If you focus on that, you get an opportunity to go back. Do you want that or do you want what he's offering? And then in the end, this is my favorite part. I want, I want to be a person who God's not ashamed to be called my God. I don't always live that way, guys. I make mistakes. I fear. I fret. We just lost all of our contracts in Germany to another bidder. And so we're trying to work out what to do. And, and so you got that. We contract. I have 30 staff there. We do youth ministry on a military basis. And yet... Uh, if I know what Sarah said, do I consider him faithful? Okay, it's the next step. This came from the hand of the Father God, and I do trust him. But I don't always live that way. Let's go to the next one. Uh, I want you guys to look at um, Moses. And he's probably the one I identify with most just because of where I'm at in my life. But mo- by faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child. What an interesting statement, huh? I mean... And they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God, rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as greater value than the treasures of Egypt. And in another version it says, he regarded the rebuke or reproach of Christ as greater than the riches of Egypt. What a fascinating statement again. That what he valued was of kingly value than what was right in front of him. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who was invisible. I'm going to stop right there for a second. How would you say that differently? How would you put that in words that we use every day? If you could see God right with you, what, what would that do for you in the way you live? would help, wouldn't it? He lived like God was absolutely real. God was more real. The God who created everything you saw out of invisible stuff is more real than that pew you're sitting on. If I live like God is more real than my circumstance of losing 
contracts in Germany for my workers to be on bases, it changes the way I feel and think, doesn't it? Because it's not up to me anymore. It's from his hand. It's by his hand. And Moses did some pretty amazing things. By faith, he kept the Passover and the application of the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. Do you guys realize he delivered something from the Lord that was devastating? I mean, we love people. Would you want the firstborn of all your neighbors to die? No, but that was the Lord's edict, and he did it by faith. And most I just want you to put in these people's shoes. Moses gave up all this stuff, a princely life. And how did the Israelites treat him? They said it would be better if you had left us in slavery. Wow. And they wanted to kill him on a couple of occasions. They did not like, you know, they were frustrated. And he gave up all this for them. And it's a good example for us. I mean, Jesus, again, what did he give up for us? If you want to talk about somebody that's entitled, entitled to worship, entitled to respect, entitled to honor. And we came and we killed him. We spit on him. We beat him. We sinned against him. It's, it's a good example. Sacrifice has always been. We'll go to the next one. And I love what the author says here. And, and there, he says that there's too many things to tell. But I just want you guys to, to hear. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon or Barak or Samson or Jephthah or about David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice and gained what was promised. Who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead and raised to life again. And there were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning and they were sought in two and they were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute and persecuted and mistreated. And the world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and living in caves and holes in the ground. We can go to the next one. And these were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. You know, one of the most disappointing things for me when we left Germany you know, we had done seven years of ministry at Ramson Air Force Base and you know, had really, the Lord had blessed our organization. And in the military does great big farewells for their, their folks. And we walked out and nobody said a thing. And it was so hard because I thought I deserved to be lauded. I thought I deserved to be appreciated for what I'd given, that I'd raised money and done all these things and given seven years of my life for that. You know what I was hoping for? I was hoping for something different, wasn't I? I was hoping for that country that's out there, that's with the Lord. It's delayed. It's not yet. And he says that the resurrection will be made better, that we're going to get those things later. And I wanted it now, and I was so disappointed, and I whined and moaned and, you know, felt had a little pity party for myself. And then somebody rebuked me, and I realized what I was happening. Whose, whose approval am I looking for? What am I entitled to? It's a privilege to join Jesus in ministry. He doesn't have to use any of us. And he gives us the opportunity to do it. And we should be thankful for it. But he says something else. Since God had planned something better for us so that we would only together with us, they would be made perfect. And these guys, they weren't made perfect a part of us because they were Old Testament. But they were made perfect with us in Jesus. And their sacrifices, whereas our sacrifices 
will be measured against the gift that Jesus offered to us. And so as we, we close out today, I want you guys to think of a couple things. And I'm going to remind you of some thoughts. But again, this is important. You guys all obey. We're never done obeying. And what is he asking? Maybe the question I want you to think about is, okay, so what, when do I tap out? When do I jump off the boat? When do I, I, I punch out? But what's God asking you to obey him in that you're not doing right now? What's the way that you need to be obeying him? Who are the people around you he's telling you to love and share the gospel and serve and give to? And we go, no, Lord, I'm not sure. That's, that's a little out of my comfort zone. But here's, I have seven things that I pulled out of here that I think are significant. And the first one is, remember this is a God-centered universe. Never was or ever will be about us. Our life through sacrifice and suffering, we offer a gift. Remember what it says in Romans? Holy sacrifice, pleasing. We're giving ourselves for him. In that, you will find the most fulfillment, the most struggle, the most pain, and the most joy. You can't divorce those things. They're all together. It's just like bearing a child. There's joy and pain together. You have to do both. You can't just have joy and faith. You've got to have the persecution because it builds your character. And it's always about him and it glorifies him. And he's glorified in those sacrifices. The second thing is, oh, it's kind of, God's glory lived through you is the goal of life, not our happiness, not our comfort. And sometimes security is really important. I want you guys to remember Noah's perseverance over a hundred years. The fruit and results of your labor is not your job. Your job is just to obey. Remember John 15, it says, abide in him and who produces the fruit. He does. He always produces the fruit. When I get so caught up in my growing grass, I told you that, when I'm like, stupid grass grow. It's not my job. I can't make grass grow. It's always God's job to produce that grass, that fruit in our lives. So just worry about obeying. Let him take care of the results. And I'm just as guilty. This is probably my biggest flaw. I want you to just remember Sarah, too. She considered him who promised faithful. It's really important that we remember God's faithfulness in our life. And so I don't know where I am on time, but quickly, we need to remember that gratefulness and thankfulness is the antidote for entitlement. And so in 9-11, there are two groups of people. They've done a lot of psychological research. Some people are still stuck there. They're angry and they're bitter and they're frustrated. And there's another group that moved on. And so researchers have been looking. And do you know after all of their work, what they found the only difference in the groups was? The second group practiced thankfulness and gratefulness. And people who practice gratefulness and thankfulness, they develop a unique ability to learn from any circumstance. And they can grow from it. They're not saying, yes, thank God for three people, a thousand people died. That's not what they're saying. They're saying, oh, huh, what did this reveal about me? What can I learn? What, what new ways do I need to trust you, God? Those are the kinds of things. And as you grow in being thankful, they say, if you just take time every day to be thankful for three things, it has a qualitative and quantitative difference on your life. And Sarah remembered him who was faithful. I'm saying if you remember the God things God's done that's faithful in your life, you feel and act differently. Now, the fifth thing is delayed promise. We just have to keep reminding each other, we're not going to get that here. We're not going to get that here. We're not going to get that here. We can do our very best, even as the body of believers, to treat each other in the way we should be treated. We can give an image and a hope of the Jesus Christ that we know to people. 
But there are so many things that are not going to be fulfilled until Christ comes back. So we have to remember that delayed promise. Do we find him faithful who promised? Six, like Moses, do we act like God is more real than our circumstances? Do we act like we can see the invisible one? We just have to remember he is, he created everything we see out of nothing There is nothing about this he can't change. And sometimes, guys, he is not going to change your circumstance because he wants you to be right in it. He doesn't, he's not going to pull you out of some things because he wants you to trust him in it. And we always ask the why question. I heard somebody say, we ask the why question. Why God? Why God? And God's answer is a question. Do you trust me? When did he ever ask Job's why questions? I don't know that he did. He kept saying, where were you? He asked a question and the question is, do we trust this God with our circumstances? And seventh, can we embrace God's challenge as a gift to shape and glorify us? Or will we choose a life, life of comfort? So my question for you is, when do you tap out? What causes you to jump off the ship or the boat or get out? And what's the thing God's asking you to obey in that you have not been obeying him in? So we're going to watch a quick video from Francis Chan. It's about five minutes, I think. And uh, anyway. He says, I, he doesn't need much introduction, but it's a great, it's a great little clip. Off the team, whatever, you know, just, there's so much instability, so much that we don't understand, that, that we don't know. For me, growing up, it was, uh, a lot of you guys know, my mom died giving birth to me. And my dad remarried. Then my stepmom died in a car accident when I was nine. Then my dad got married again. Then my dad died of cancer when I was 12. And so I'm in junior high, my mom's dead, my stepmom's dead, my dad's dead. The only close relatives I had were my, my aunt and uncle, George and Sandra. And then when I was in high school, they got in a fight, and my uncle George shot and killed my aunt, and then stuck the gun to his own head, killed himself. So I'm 16 years old, and this is life to me, going, man, what's next? Everything seems to be falling apart, and we get a little worried, we get a little scared. And this is what Christians do. You know, they try to serve God, but then things get a little rocky. And things get a little unstable. And so we go, okay, that was nuts. I don't, I don't, want, to, I don't want to live like that. Let me, uh, let me hold on. And this is your routine. This is what so many people do. They go, you know what? I'm not going to try anything crazy. I'm just going to sit here. And uh, I'm just going to hold on. And uh, this is what you look like. You just go... Uh, this is what people do. You know what? I'm just going to have my nice little family. We're just going to, um, you know, we're just going to keep to ourselves. We're going to live in a gated community. I'm going to homeschool my kids, make them wear helmets everywhere. I'm going to, um, you know, I'm not going to let them outside because sun has bad rays. I'm going to, um, you know, just on and on and on. And you just live your life in the safety of I don't want to do anything crazy for God. I just... I just want to, you know, go to church on Sundays and maybe give like 2% um, and uh, maybe serve, help the nursery because I feel guilty. And then you do this your whole life and then you, you go, your greatest prayer is like, God, you know what? I would love to die in my sleep and not even feel it and then just go up to heaven. And so you want to die like this, just in your sleep, ooh, right in the middle of a dream, good dream, the dream you're going to heaven and you don't even feel it and then suddenly you wake up you stand before the judge and you go now if uh, could you imagine could you imagine watching the Olympics you know 
And some girl does that, just gets up there, starts straddling the thing, and then steps off and goes... What is the judge supposed to do on the card? You see, and to me, I go, man, that's the routine that so many Christians are headed for. That's the routine, the boring, I do nothing crazy because I don't want to fall. I, I, that's the routine that they're going to live, and then one day it's going to be a shock because they're going to step off that balance beam and realize they're standing before the judge. They're standing before the judge, and you think he's going to look at that routine and go, Wow, well done. Well done. You lived the safest life possible. You didn't slip. You didn't fall. See, that's not the life that God's called us to. That's where the majority will head. But I don't want to go where the majority goes. 